For the Love of Reading, featuring selections from novels, complete short stories, poetry, and nonfiction, read for you by Linda Pack and special guest Jamie Roberts. Summer fading, winter comes, frosty mornings, tingling thumbs, window robins, winter rooks, and the picture storybooks. Water now is turned to stones, nurse and I can walk upon. Still we find the flowing brooks in the picture storybooks. All the pretty things put by wait upon the children's eye. Sheep and shepherds, trees and crooks in the picture storybooks. We may see how all things are, seas and cities near and far, and the flying fairies' looks in the picture storybooks. How am I to sing your praise, happy chimney-corner days, sitting safe in nursery nooks, reading picture storybooks? Jamie, that poem by Robert Louis Stevenson, it just makes me think of how much I love being able to read when I was a child, I was given this surprising gift from a grandfather of a friend, and it was not a picture book. It was a very serious small book with an orange cloth binding and the title stamped on the spine called The Friendship of Books. It was filled with quotes sublime and profound from minds pure and beautiful. On that very subject, there were deep thoughts like these... Reading is departure and arrival. And uh, once you learn to read, you will be forever free. I do think these are true things, too. Oh, and this one. I declare, after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything but a book. (laughs) Now, it was a silly choice to give a seven-year-old girl. But, you know, as it's turned out, it was a prophetic one. Books have, in fact, always been my friends in so many ways. So when I discovered Christopher Morley's charming 1917 novel, Parnassus on Wheels, which is the story of a traveling bookstore in rural America, I felt an immediate kinship with the main characters, and I thought, who better than Jamie Roberts to join me in this ridiculously unabashed appreciation of the joys of the literacy and what fun it would be to read it with you. Oh, yeah, Linda. (laughs) It really has been fun working on this show with you. And and thanks for turning me on to this fun book. I knew we were only going to be reading the first two chapters, but the story and the people in it just drew me in, and I read right on through the whole book. (laughs) Well, what would usually draw you to a book then besides me saying, Jamie, read this? Well, thinking back, I, you know, my parents had a small collection of beautiful hardbound editions of books like Huckleberry Finn, Tom Sawyer, and The Wind in the Willows. They had drawings at the head of each chapter. Oh, I love that. Yeah, and but also several gorgeous full-color plates. The Twain books were illustrated by Norman Rockwell. Whoa. They, were, they were really cool. Yeah. So the physical thing of leafing through these pages when I was a kid drew me in, and the stories, the adventures are what hooked me. Yeah, so what are you reading now that you're all grown up? (laughs) (laughs) Well, lately I've been reading a lot of uh, historical fiction. 
Right now, I'm revisiting Patrick O'Brien's Master and Commander series of books. There are 20 of them, and each one is a whole world to dive into. Mm. The books follow the life of um, the life and career of Captain Aubrey and of his constant companion and ship surgeon Stephen Matterin. They have an amazing amount of detail about life aboard ships in the Royal Navy during England's war with Napoleon. This was in the late 18th and early 19th century. Right. But there's also so much about the geopolitics, the economics, and the social norms of the time. And it's just such a ripping adventure full of exotic (laughs) places, exotic fauna, intrigue, and even espionage. Well, I could go on, but the thing that really makes O'Brien's books a place that I can always return to and explore is that they're just full of people that you get to know after a while. And O'Brien is just such a great observer of human nature. You know, I would say the same thing about Jane Austen, but we're not going to read Jane Austen (laughs) or O'Brien now. We're going to read Parnassus on Wheels in just a minute. Uh, But it is interesting to think that what we call historical fiction now is being written now, but you could say that any fiction that was actually written and taking place in the eras before ours is historical fiction. But, you know, there's another thing about fiction that's interesting. Um, I have in front of me at this exact moment, look, I'll show it to you, my Curious George bookmark, where he (laughs) teaches us about the Dewey Decimal System. See, there he is on the ladder looking in the library. But my and my and this this was published in 1967 um, and uh, by the Children's Book Council of the Universe. And um, he it says, this bookmark says, Curious George says, that um, uh, Melville Dewey, the originator of the decimal system of cataloging books, chose his main subject groups by imagining a prehistoric man asking himself questions about the world. So, and then there's a list of these ten questions, nine of which are nonfiction and only one of which is fiction, proving according to Curious George and Melville Dewey, that only one ten percent of published works are fiction and mm-hmm. everything else is nonfiction. But it's fun <laughs> wow. to look at... Now, I have studied this, and in fact, I don't think it's true. I don't think that's how Melville Dewey invented the system, which he invented when he was 25 years old, by the mm-hmm. way. He was actually a genius. Um, strange, but a genius. But But just for fun... The first category is 100, or when he invented it, and the question he's asking is, who am I? What do you think those books are then? Just a guess. Mm, Philosophy. Yes, they are, in fact, philosophy. Books about man's mind and thoughts, says Curious George. Uh, How about, who is the man in the next cave? (laughs) Uh. Which is 300 books. (laughs) <laughs> the books in the 300 crib. Uh, that would have to be sociology. Yes, it is books about brotherhood and government and careers and customs and holidays and folklore and fairy tales. And then and then the only one that is fiction, literature created from the imagination, that's 800, and that's fiction, poetry, and plays. And the question he asked was, theoretically... What are the stories of man's great thoughts and deeds? The stories. 
It's all about the stories. So, so that's popular literature for you. Well, the rise of popular literature of all kinds would not have been possible without the most significant invention of the past thousand years, the printing press. Yes. Yes, the printing press. It was invented around 1450 by goldsmith Johannes Gutenberg. By 1500, a mere 50 years, printing presses were in operation throughout Western Europe and had already produced more than 20 million volumes. As printing spread throughout Europe in the late 16th century, an estimated 150 to 200 million volumes. Million? Yes, 200 million volumes filled with information and ideas. They all they came into circulation and thus began the era of mass communication. Well, then this was the invention that democratized reading because books were suddenly fast to produce and cheap. And if you knew how to read, and I'm guessing literacy had skyrocketed, then you no longer had to be wealthy or in holy orders to read. And suddenly, there was plenty to read. There were newspapers. There were pamphlets and books, lots of books. But, you know, broadsides, they were by far the most popular ephemeral format, which were used throughout printed history still today because they're just single sheets of paper. And they're printed on one side only, very quickly, maybe crudely produced in large numbers. And back in the day, they were distributed for free in town squares and taverns and churches, wherever people gathered. Kind of like tweets. Huh? <laughs> yes, on paper. <laughs> but seriously, the oldest one was, uh, was printed by Gutenberg himself in 1454, before he printed his famous Bible. Oh, maybe he was practicing. <laughs> In the 18th and 19th century, American broadsides were nailed up at courthouses, public taverns, and post offices, and served as mass media in an age where the worlds of Americans were less connected, or more slowly connected, than we are now. And the topics of broadsides, they offered readers this huge array of subjects. There were advertisements and public announcements, and the latest news. Oh, Here's an example of a broadside printed in Boston on December 9th, 1773. 1773. Yeah. It conveyed news of meetings called by Samuel Adams. Yeah. Okay, check this out. For the purpose of consulting, advising, and determining upon the most proper and effectual method to prevent the unloading, receiving, or vending the detestable tea (gasps) sent out by the East India Company... In other words, the organization of the Boston Tea Party when American colonists, frustrated and angry at Britain for imposing taxation without representation, dumped 342 chests of tea into into the harbor. There it is. There it is. That's that's action on the hoof, brought (laughs) to you by a broadside. But, you know, there are still modern broadsides. Um, And my favorite modern broadside is a prose poem that was uh, celebrates the immense comfort of the variety of books that, that are available in the world. And it was written by Jane Smiley and distributed by Northern California Independent Booksellers Association in 1994. I'm going to read it. Leaving any bookstore is hard. 
especially on a day in August, when the street outside burns and glares and the books inside are cool and crisp to the touch, especially on a day in January, when the wind is blowing, the ice is treacherous, and the books inside seem to gather together in colorful warmth. It's hard to leave a bookstore any day of the year, though, because a bookstore is one of the few places where all the cantankerous, conflicting, alluring voices of the world coexist in peace and order, and the avid reader is as free as a person can possibly be, because she is free to choose among them. Well, beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, broadsides were one way that books and other printing matter got out to the people, since people had limited means to get to them. Now there are libraries and bookstores, print is everywhere. And of course, we have Project Gutenberg providing a free resource for books in public domain from ancient to modern. ProjectGutenberg.org, which is the resource where we got our text for Parnassus on Wheels, the 1917 novel that we are about to read. Yeah, nowadays every, I mean, it changes every year. So now every book, any book that's been published before 1927, I think it is, is in the public domain. Mm -hmm. But did you know that there were times and places where getting books out to pu getting books out to people took extraordinary effort and even courage. Courage. Yeah, in 1936, during the Depression, as part of Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, the Kentucky WPA began to hire pack horse librarians, mostly women, to carry books to isolated cabins, rural schoolhouses, and homebound coal miners. The routes were rugged and treacherous. These bookwomen followed creek beds and Fence routes through summer heat and frozen winters, hmm. their saddlebags and pillowcases stuffed with Robinson Crusoe, <laughs> Women's Home Companion, Popular Mechanics. And many people were illiterate, and the women often stayed and read to them. Yes, th that's an amazing story. Yeah. And, and it is... A it is just like the story of Parnassus on Wheels, yeah, bringing much. good books to country people. It's the center of the story. You know, some of the books that were available around um, the time that Christopher Morley was writing Parnassus on Wheels were, uh, were this very popular style of sentimental literature that overly romanticized rural life. Uh, in particular, there was a nine-volume series of stories written in 1907 titled Adventures in Contentment by a man named David Grayson. And in these books, the narrator describes how he exchanged his stifling life in the city for the bucolic pleasures of the country. So, uh, Jamie, read us an example of, of this this uh, adventures in contentment. Okay, I'll give it a go. It was as though concerned with plow and harness and furrow, I had never known that the world had height or color or sweet sounds or that there, there, or that there was feeling in a hillside. I forgot myself or where I was. I stood a long time motionless, my dominant feeling, if I can express it, was of a strange new friendliness, 
a warmth, as though these hills, this field about me, the woods, had suddenly spoken to me and caressed me. It was as though I had been accepted in membership, as though I was now recognized after long trial as belonging here. Oh. <laughs> Good. Well, taking his cue from Adventures in Contentment, those um, <clears throat> romantic stories, the prolific American author and journalist Christopher Morley penned the delightful novel Parnassus on Wheels. Point of fact here, um, according to the Collins English D Dictionary, mm -hmm. Parnassus means the world of poetry or any center of literary or artistic activity. It comes from Mount Parnassus in central Greece, which was the sacred home to the muses, the patron goddess, uh, goddesses of all the arts. I just discovered it's, a, it's the name of one of the Sirius stations, the, uh, the uh, streaming service, the oh. music streaming service. Um, and on it, they play nothing but classical music. <laughs> <laughs> But here, now, finally, as advertised, starting at the very beginning, is the novel Parnassus on Wheels. I wonder if there isn't a lot of bunkum in higher education. I never found that people who were learned in logarithms and other kinds of poetry were any quicker in washing dishes or darning socks. I've done a good deal of reading when I could, and I don't want to admit impediments to the love of books, but I've also seen lots of good practical folks spoiled by too much fine print. Reading sonnets always gives me the hiccups, too. Well, I never expected to be an author, but I do think there are some amusing things about the story of Andrew and myself and how books broke up our placid life. When John Gutenberg, whose real name, so the professor says, was John Gooseflesh, borrowed that money to set up his printing press, he launched a lot of troubles on the world. Andrew and I were wonderfully happy on the farm, until he became an author. If I could have foreseen all the bother his writings were to cause us, I would certainly have burnt the first manuscript in the kitchen stove. Andrew McGill, the author of those books everyone reads, is my brother. In other words, I am his sister, ten years younger. Years ago, Andrew was a businessman, but his health failed, and like so many people in the storybooks, he fled to the country, or as he called it, to the bosom of nature. I was slowly perishing as a conscientious governess in the brownstone region of New York, and he rescued me from that, and we bought a farm with our combined savings. We became real farmers, up with the sun and to bed with the same... Andrew wore overalls and a soft shirt and grew brown and tough. My hands got red and blue with soap suds and frost, and my kitchen was a battlefield where I set my teeth and learned to love hard work. Our literature was government agriculture reports, uh, patent medicine almanacs, seedsman's booklets, and Sears Roebuck catalogs. We subscribed to Farm and Fireside and read the serials aloud. Every now and then, for real excitement, we read something stirring in the Old Testament. Oh, that cheery book Jeremiah, for instance, of which Andrew was very fond. 
the farm did actually prosper after a while, and Andrew used to hang over the pasture bars at sunset and tell from the way his pipe burned just what the weather would be the next day. As I have said, we were tremendously happy until Andrew got the fatal idea of telling the world how happy we were. I am sorry to have to admit that he had always been rather a bookish man. In his college days, he'd edited the student's magazine, and sometimes he would read me some of his youthful poems and stories and mutter vaguely about writing something himself some day. I'm bound to say I never took these threats very seriously. I should have been more severe. Then, great-uncle Philip died, and his carload of books came to us. He had been a college professor, and all those books turned up one fine day. That was the beginning of the end, if only I had known it. Andrew had the time of his life building shelves all around our living room. Not content with that... He turned the old hen house into a study for himself, put in a stove, and used to sit up there evenings after I'd gone to bed. He used to take a book along with him when he drove over to Redfield for supplies, and sometimes the wagon would be two hours late coming home, with old Ben loafing along between the shafts and Andrew lost in his book. I didn't think much of all this, but I'm an easygoing woman, and as long as Andrew kept the farm going, I had plenty to do on my own hook. Hot bread and coffee, eggs and preserves for breakfast, soup and hot meat, vegetables, dumplings, gravy, brown bread and white, huckleberry pudding, chocolate cake and buttermilk for dinner, muffins, tea, sausage rolls, blackberries and cream, and donuts for supper. <laughs> That's a kind of menu I'd been preparing three times a day for years. I had any time to worry about what wasn't my business. And then one morning I caught Andrew doing up a big flat parcel for the postman. He looked so sheepish. I just had to ask what it was. He had written a book. Paradise Regained by Andrew McGill. Well, even then, I wasn't much worried because, of course, I knew no one would print it. But Lord, a month or so later came a letter from a publisher accepting it. That's the letter Andrew keeps framed above his desk. Just to show how just things, how things like that sound, I'm going to copy it out right here. <laughs> to Cameron Jones and Company, Publishers, Union Square, New York, January 13, 1907. Dear Mr. McGill, we have read with singular pleasure your, manuscripts, your manuscript Paradise Regained. There is no doubt in our minds that so spirited an account of the joys of sane country living should meet with popular approval, and with the exception of a few revisions and abbreviations, we would be glad to publish the book practically as it stands. We would be glad to pay you a royalty of 10% upon the retail price of the book, and we enclose duplicate contracts for your signature in case this proves satisfactory to you. Believe us, etc., etc., to Cameron Jones and Company. I have since thought that Paradise Lost would have been a better title for that book. 
It was published in the autumn of 1907, and since that time our life has never been the same. By some mischance, the book became the success of the season. It was widely commended as a gospel of health and sanity, and Andrew received in almost every mail offers from publishers and magazine editors who wanted to get a hold of his next book. You can imagine that it didn't take long for Andrew to become spoiled at this rate. Next year, he suddenly disappeared, leaving only a note on the kitchen table and tramped all over the state for six weeks collecting material for a new book. I had all I could do to keep him from going to New York to talk to editors and people of that sort. Envelopes of newspaper cuttings used to come to him, and he would pore over them when he ought to have been plowing corn. After the second book, Happiness and Hayseed, it was called, was printed, letters from publishers got so thick that I used to put them all in the stove before Andrew saw them, except those from the Decameron Jones people, which sometimes held checks. But Andrew got to be less and less of a farmer and more and more of a literary man. He bought a typewriter. He would hang over the pig pen, noting down adjectives for the sunset, instead of mending the weather vane on the barn, which took a slew so that the north wind came from the southwest. He hardly ever looked at this year's Roebuck catalogs anymore. And after Mr. Decameron came to visit us and suggested that Andrew write a book of country poems, the man became simply unbearable. When somebody wrote a little booklet about the sage of Redfield and described me as the domestic balance wheel that keeps the great writer close to the homely realities of life, I made up my mind to give Andrew some of his own medicine. And that's my story. It was a fine, crisp morning in fall, October, I dare say, and I was in the kitchen coring apples for applesauce. We were going to have roast pork for dinner with boiled potatoes and brown gravy. Andrew had driven over to town to get some flour and feed and wouldn't be back until noontime. I remember I was just on my way out to the woodpile for a few sticks of birch when I heard wheels turn in at the gate. There was one of the fattest white horses I ever saw and a queer wagon shaped like a van. A funny-looking little man with a red beard leaned forward from the seat and said something. I didn't hear what it was. I was looking at that preposterous wagon of his. It was colored a pale robin's egg blue, and on the side, in big scarlet letters, was painted these words. R. Mifflin's Traveling Parnassus, Good Books for Sale, Shakespeare, Charles Lamb, R.L.S. Saslett, and all others. Underneath the wagon, in slings, hung what looked like a tent, uh, together with a lantern, a bucket, and other small things. The van had a raised skylight on the roof, something like an old-fashioned trolley car, and from one corner went up a stovepipe. At the back was a door with little windows on each side and a flight of steps leading up to it. As I stood looking at this queer turnout, the little reddish man climbed down from the front and stood watching me. His face was a comic mixture of pleasant drollery and a sort of weather-beaten cynicism. 
He had a nice, neat little russet beard and a shabby Norfolk jacket. His head was very bald. Is this where Andrew McGill lives? I admitted it. But he's away till noon. He'll be back then. There's roast pork for dinner. And applesauce? Applesauce and brown gravy. That's why I'm sure he'll be home on time. Sometimes he's late when there's a boiled dinner, but never on roast pork days. Andrew would never do for a rabbi. A sudden suspicion struck me. You're not another publisher, are you? What do you want with Andrew? I was wondering whether he wouldn't buy this outfit. The little man included, with a wave of the hand, both van and white horse. As he spoke, he released a hook somewhere and raised the whole side of the wagon like a flap. Some kind of catch clicked, and the flap remained up like a roof, displaying nothing but books, rows and rows of them. The flank of his wagon was nothing but a big bookcase. Shelves stood above shelves, all of them full of books, both old and new. As I stood gazing, he pulled out a printed card from somewhere and gave it to me. It read, Roger Mifflin's Traveling Parnassus. Worthy friends, my Wayne doth hold many a book, both new and old. Books, the truest friends of man, fill this rolling caravan. Books to satisfy all uses. Golden lyrics of the muses. Books on cookery and farming. Novels passionate and charming. Every kind for every need, so that he who buys may read. What librarian can pass surpass us? Mifflin's Traveling Barnassus. By R. Mifflin, proprietor, star job print, Celeryville, Virginia. <laughs> While I was chuckling over this, he raised a similar flap on the other side of the Parnassus, which revealed still more shelves loaded with books. I'm afraid I am severely practical by nature. Well, I should think you would need a pretty stout steed to lug that along. It must weigh more than a coal wagon. Oh, Peg can, ma oh, Peg can manage it all right. We don't travel very fast. But look here. I want to sell out. Do you suppose your husband would buy the outfit? Parnassus, Pegasus and all? He's fond of books, isn't he? Hold on a minute. Andrew's my brother, not my husband. And he's altogether too fond of books. Books will be the ruin of this farm pretty soon. He's mooning about over his books like a sitting hen about half the time when he ought to be mending harness. Lord, if he saw this wagon load of yours, he'd be unsettled for a week. I have to stop the postman down the road and take all the publisher's catalogs out of the mail so that Andrew don't see him. I'm mighty glad he's not here just now, I can tell you. I'm not literary, as I said before. But I'm human enough to like a good book. And my eye was running along those shelves of his as I spoke. He certainly had a pretty miscellaneous collection. I noticed poetry, essays, novels, cookbooks, juveniles, school books, Bibles, and whatnot all jumbled together. Well, see here. I've been cruising with this Parnassus going on seven years. I've covered the territory from Florida to Maine, and I reckon I've inject injected much good literature into the countryside. 
I want to sell out now. I'm going to write a book about literature among the farmers, and I want to settle down with my brother in Brooklyn and write it. I've got a sack full of notes for it. Well, I guess I'll just stick around until Mr. McGill gets home and see if he won't buy me out. I'll sell the whole concern, horse, wagon, and books for $400. I've read Andrew McGill's stuff, and I reckon the proposition will interest him. I've had more fun with this Parnassus than a barrel of monkeys. I used to be a schoolteacher till my health broke down. Then I took this up, and I've made more than expenses and had the time of my life. Well, Mr. Mifflin, if you want to stay around, I guess I can't stop you. But I'm sorry you and your old Parnassus ever came this way. I turned on my heel and went back to the kitchen. I knew pretty well that Andrew would go up in the air when he saw that wagon load of books and one of those crazy cards with Mr. Mifflin's poetry on it. I must confess, I was considerably upset. Andrew is just as unpractical and fanciful as a young girl and always dreaming of new adventures and rambles around the country. If he ever saw that traveling Parnassus, he'd fall for it like a snap. And I knew Mr. DeCameron was after him for a new book anyway. I'd intercepted one of his letters just a few weeks before. Andrew was away when the letter came. I had a suspicion what was in it. So I opened it and read it and, well, burnt it. Heavens, was though Andrew didn't have enough to do. As I worked around the kitchen, I could see Mr. Mifflin making himself at home. He unhitched his horse, tied her up to the fence, sat down by the woodpile and lit a pipe. I could see I was in for it. By and by, I couldn't stand it any longer. I went out to talk to that bald-headed peddler. See here, you're a pretty cool fish to make yourself so easy in my yard. I tell you, I don't want you around here, you and your traveling parcheesy. Suppose you clear out of here before my brother gets back and don't be breaking up our happy family. Miss McGill. The man had a pleasant way with him, too, darn him, with his bright twinkling eye and his silly little beard. I'm sure I don't want to be discourteous. If you move beyond from here, of course I'll go. But I warn you, I shall lie in wait for Mr. McGill just down the road. I'm here to sell this caravan of culture, and by the bones of Swinburne, I think your brother's the man to buy it. My blood was up now, and I'll admit that I said my next without proper calculation. <clears throat> Rather than have Andrew buy your old Parcheesi, I'll buy it myself. I'll give you $300 for it. The little man's face brightened. He didn't either accept or decline my offer. I was frightened to death he'd take me right on the nail and bang would go my three years' savings for a Ford. <laughs> Come and have another look at her. I must admit that Mr. Roger Mifflin had flixed, fixed up his van mighty comfortably inside. The body of the wagon was built out on each side over the wheels, which gave it an unwieldy appearance but made extra room for the bookshelves. This left an inside space of about five feet wide and nine long. On one side, he had a little oil stove, a flap table, and a cozy-looking bunk, above which was built a kind of chest of drawers to hold clothes and such things, I suppose. And on the other side, more bookshelves, a small table, 
and a little wicker easy chair. Every possible inch of space seemed to be made useful in some way, for a shelf or a hook or a hanging cupboard or something. Above the stove was a neat little row of pots and dishes and cooking usefuls. The raised skylight made it just possible to stand upright in the center aisle of the van, and a little sliding window opened onto the driver's seat in front. Altogether, it was a very neat affair. The windows in the front and back were curtained, and a pot of geranium stood on a diminutive shelf. I was amused to see a sandy Irish terrier curled up on a bright Mexican blanket in the bunk. Miss McGill, I couldn't sell Parnassus for less than 400 I've put twice that much into her one time and another. She's built clean and solid all through, and there's everything a man would need from blankets to bouillon cubes. The whole thing's yours for $400, including dog, cook stove, and everything, jib, boom, and spanker. There's a tent and a sling underneath, and an ice box, and a tank of coal oil, and Lord knows what all. She's as good as a yacht. But I'm tired of her. Hey, if you're so afraid of your brother taking a fancy to her, why don't you buy her yourself and go off on a lark? Make him stay home and mind the farm. I tell you what I'll do. I'll start you on the road myself, come with you the first day, and show you how it's worked. You could have the time of your life in this thing and give yourself a fine vacation. It would give your brother a good surprise, too. Why not? I don't know whether it was the neatness of his absurd little van or the madness of the whole proposition or just the desire to have an adventure of my own and play a trick on Andrew. But anyway... Some extraordinary impulse seized me, and I roared with laughter. <laughs> right, I'll do it. I, Helen McGill, in the 39th year of my age. <laughs> Tell me, I said, does your Parnassus, my Parnassus, rather, contain everything I'm likely to need? Is it stocked up with food and so on? Uh, I was coming to that. You'll find a fair supply of stuff in the cupboard over the stove, though I used to get most of my meals at farmhouses along the road. I generally read aloud to people as I go along, and they're often good for a free meal. It's amazing how little most of the country folk know about books and how pleased they are to hear good stuff. Well, tell me how you manage the thing. Do you really make it pay? There's a farmer who's waiting for me to go back. I've been there three or four times, and he'll buy about $5 worth if I know him. First time I went there, I sold him Treasure Island, and he's talking about it yet. <clears throat> I sold him Robinson Crusoe and Little Women for his daughter and Huck Finn and Grubb's book about the potato. <laughs> Last time I was there, he wanted some Shakespeare, but I wouldn't give it to him. I didn't think he was up to it yet. I began to see something of the little man's idealism in his work. He was kind of a traveling missionary in his way. A hefty talker, too. His eyes were twinkling now, and I could see him warming up. Lord, when you sell a man a book, you don't sell him just 12 ounces of paper and ink and glue. You sell him a whole new life. Love and friendship and humor and ships at sea by night. There's all heaven and earth in a book, a real book, I mean. Jiminy, they don't forget Parnassus in a hurry.
You see, my idea is that the common people, in the country, that is, never have had any chance to get hold of books and never have had anyone to explain what books can mean. What the people need is the good, homely, honest stuff, something that'll stick to their ribs, make them laugh and tremble and feel sick to think of the littleness of this popcorn ball spinning in space, and something that'll spur them on to keep the hearth well swept and the woodpile split into kindling and the dishes washed and dried and put away. Anyone who can get the country people to read something worthwhile is doing his nation a real service, and that's what this caravan of culture aspires to. He pushed his faded old cap back on his head and relit his pipe. I clicked a pegasus, and we rumbled gently off over the upland, looking down across the pastures. Distant cowbells sounded tankle-tonk among the bushes. Across the slope of the hill, I could see the road winding away to Redfield. Somewhere along that road, Andrew would be rolling back toward home and roast pork with applesauce. And here was I, setting out on the first madness of my life, without even a qualm. You have just heard the beginning of the novel Parnassus on Wheels by Christopher Morley. And now, here is the preface of the book. Um, yeah, it contains a real spoiler about the, how the novel ends, so we're reading it now as an afterword. A letter to David Grayson, Esquire, the author of Adventures in Contentment, from Christopher Morley. My dear sir, although my name appears on the title page, the real author of this book is Miss Helen McGill, uh, now Mrs. Roger Mifflin, who told me the story with her own inimitable vivacity, and on her behalf, I want to send you these words of acknowledgement. This is her first book, and I doubt whether she will ever write another. She hardly realized, I think, how much her story owes to your own delightful writings. I have seen her pick up a well-thumbed copy of Adventures in Contentment after a long day in the kitchen, read it with chuckles, and say that your story reminded her of herself and Andrew. And so when her own adventure came to pass, and she was urged to put it on paper, I think she unconsciously adopted some of the manner and matter that you have made properly yours. Miss McGill, now Mrs. Mifflin, would have said this for herself with her characteristic definiteness of speech had she not been out of touch with her publishers and foolscap paper. She and the professor are on their Parnassus, somewhere on the high roads, happily engrossed in the most godly diversion known to man, selling books and I venture to think that there are no volumes they take more pleasure in recommending than the wholesome and invigorating books which bear your name. Believe me, Mr. Grayson, with warm regards, faithfully yours, Christopher Morley. <laughs> yeah, Linda, I've <laughs> traveled down some high roads with good books as traveling companions. Oh, yes. Yeah. 
You know, there's that delicious serendipity that happens sometimes when you're staying at some campground or inn in a foreign place and get drawn in by a book that some other traveler has left behind. I love those random discoveries of new things to read. And just last week, I found an interesting title in one of those little free libraries that people put in front of their homes on the streets where you can take a book and leave a book. Mm -hmm. Um, And the one I found is literally called What to Read and Why (laughs) by Francine Prose. And I have to say, it's quite good. I'm reading it slowly and I really like it. It's essays. And also, since I am obviously, I, I cannot be without a good story, and, but if I read in a moving vehicle, it mm. makes me carsick. On the road, I'm grateful just to have a really well-written and really well-read audiobook or a bumper sticker or a billboard to read. But, you know, the best roadside reading ever invented was brought to us by a shaving cream company. Burma Shave. Burma Shave. Yeah. Starting in 1925, the highway advertising signs for Burma Shave, the first brushless shaving cream, began to appear across the USA. This arrangement of six small, light-hearted signs planted 100 paces apart established a controlled reading pace and even added an element of surprise. That's right. They were little signs. Yeah, they weren't very big. No, they weren't very big, and they weren't very tall off the ground. At 35 miles an hour, it took almost three seconds to proceed from sign to sign or 18 seconds to drive past the whole series. Right. So the eye could concentrate attention on one sign at a time, building the effect for the payoff line. This was uh, far more time and attention than a newspaper or magazine advertiser could realistically expect to win from casual observers. Sure. Yeah, Burma Shave signs attracted the attention of virtually every literate passerby. Here's the first one. Your shaving brush has had its day, so why not shave the modern way? Burma shave. Shaving brush, all wet and hairy. I've passed you up for sanitary. Burma shave. Yeah, those signs were on virtually every road in America. If they met the right requirements, it had to be a straight and fairly level stretch and a place with no other signs, especially big billboards, because that would eclipse part of a series. And the site had to be visible from a considerable distance. And people soon developed favorites, and sign spotting became the best car game ever. Everyone in the car would chant... As they read, lawyers, doctors, sheiks and bakers, mountaineers and undertakers, make their bristly beards behave by using brushless Burma shave. No lady likes to dance or dine, accompanied by a porcupine. Burma shave. And then soon the company uh, added public service jingles. And by 1940, one-third of the signs were for highway safety. Mm. Yeah, don't pass cars. On curves or hills. If the cops don't get you. Morticians will. Burma Burma shave. If these signs blur. And bounce around. You'd better park. And walk to town. 
Burma shave. <laughs> when frisky. With whiskey. Don't drive. Cause it's risky. Burma shave. Ah, oh, Jamie, I miss those signs. Yeah, me too. Are they all really gone? Well, there's one in the Smithsonian, but they still exist very much alive in thousands of memories. We're widely read and often quoted. But it's shaves, not signs, for which we're noted. Burma shave. If you don't know whose signs these are, you can't have driven very far. Burma shave. It's poetry through the car window. Boy, any way you get it, reading is magic. Here's, here's a poem that I think brings this all together for us by the brilliant Dylan Thomas called Notes on the Art of Poetry. I never would have dreamt that there were such goings-on in the world between the covers of books, such sandstorms and ice blasts of words, such staggering peace, such enormous laughter, such and so many blinding bright lights splashing all over the pages in a million bits and pieces, all of which were words, 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 and each of which were alive forever in its own delight and glory and oddity and light. Oh, beautiful. Thank you, Linda. And thank you, Dylan Thomas. <laughs> and, and thank you, Christopher Morley. And with thanks to Johannes Gutenberg as well. And to you, my special guest, Jamie Roberts. And that is all for this edition of For the Love of Reading, The Friendship of Books. The material read on this edition of For the Love of Reading was selected, reviewed, and edited by Linda Pack. This program is archived and available on the KZYX For the Love of Reading podcast, on demand with the KZYX phone app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And at lindapack.net, you will find information and links to all of the shows aired on For the Love of Reading. KZYX For the Love of Reading is a production of listener-supported community radio, KZYX and Z, public broadcasting from Mendocino County, California. On our website, kzyx.org, you will find links to all our podcasts, including KZYX Mendocino County Remembered, Oral Histories Read for You by Linda Pack. You can also stream live programming and show your support by clicking the red donate button. This is Linda Pack. Thanks for listening.